Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about... The Hudson Bay Company, and I know that many of you listening are probably going, well, hang on one second, mate, what's going on here? Has he done it? Has Riley finally sold out? What's he doing? The, the history of a department store. Well, this, week, this week's episode, my friend, proudly brought to you by Hudson's Bay Company, selling slightly overpriced kettles and, like, I don't know, handbags. I... I have never visited Hudson Bay Company, and in all honesty, this is not a sponsored podcast. And if it were, it certainly wouldn't be brought to you by the Hudson's Bay Company themselves. Because let me tell you this: we are going to get through some of the company's very dirty laundry from uh, from their three and a half century history here. Um, for those of you who have no idea about the Hudson's Bay Company, uh, those not living in North America, principally, uh, particularly in Canada. Uh, HBC is known these days as a famous chain of department stores. Seems like they're very similar to David Jones or Myers back at home in Australia. Um, the difference between David Jones and Hudson's Bay Company, however, is that David Jones wasn't effectively, for much of its history, a government that ruled over a vast, vast swath of what is today Canada. The Hudson's Bay Company was founded in 1670 with a royal charter that granted it a, uh, a trading monopoly over the entire region of North America that drained into Hudson's Bay in today's Canada. And this was an enormous amount of land that only got bigger as the HBC expanded its influence and its power as the years went on. They principally traded in fur. Um, and uh, the company became the de facto government of this entire area that it ruled over uh, as it dominated the you know the day-to-day lives of the people that lived there, both Indigenous Americans and European colonists. A very interesting history indeed. This company has a very interesting history, um, a history that's absolutely inexorable from the history of Canada as a nation um, because a huge proportion of modern Canada was governed by the HBC right up until 1869 when Canada bought all this land off of them and, and incorporated into the brand new Dominion of Canada established in 1867. But uh, as a company rather than, you know, a proper government, the HBC still had authority over the lives and activities of thousands upon thousands of people, a large proportion of them Indigenous, uh, as the company enforced this, this monopoly that had been granted uh, in, in the 17th century. And, you know, look, this isn't the only case of a huge company acting as a de facto government. Plenty of other examples, most notably the British East India Company and, of course, the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, where it all began. But the story of uh, Hudson's Bay Company is it's particularly interesting in that, unlike many other historical trading companies, it survived. It pivoted. It moved from fur trading to real estate to natural resources to homewares and is now a, a huge department store, which is famous for selling expensive stripy blankets. And this is all due to this is all thanks to a couple of Frenchmen who went off one day into the Canadian wilderness to find some furs and you know, this this small domino of history being knocked over led to a chain of department stores throughout the United States and Canada selling stripy blankets. So we're gonna we're gonna trace through that uh, that history today, uh, as you can already as you've already guessed, a lot to get across. So let's get to it. Here we go now with the history of the Hudson's Bay Company. Let's begin. <clears throat> we're going all the way back, we're going all the way back here to 1659 to New France, the uh, the French colonies that had been established on the North American continent. Um, obviously, these colonies 
did not stick around. Ultimately, uh, Britain was Britain managed to uh, prize control of French, the French colonial possessions uh, that, that that had been established in North America. Although there are still parts of North America, you know, most famously Quebec, that are still uh, uh, the majority of them are French speaking. Um, but uh, back in 1659, there are these French colonies, New France, on specifically on the Saint Lawrence River, where today you find uh, the Quebecois cities of Montreal, Quebec City. This was a region, the St. Lawrence River region, it had a booming fur trade that up up until the beginning of this tale uh, had offered the French an effective monopoly over the entire fur industry, an enormous amount of demand for fur back in Europe, uh, specifically beaver fur. And the French were taking full advantage of this with their uh, colonial possessions in North America. Anyway, the story right out, it begins in 1659, as I say, and it begins with two Frenchmen, two French coureurs du bois, I think that's what they were called, blokes who went off into the Canadian wilderness to obtain fur, usually by trading with Indigenous communities. Now, these two blokes, their names were Pierre Esprit Radisson and Médard de Grossiers, right? And these two fellas, they were keen to expand the area in which they traded. And the reason for this is they'd heard from the native Cree people that they, with, with whom they'd been trading, they'd heard that the best furs were found a lot further north than the St. Lawrence River, a lot further north and further west towards Hudson's Bay. And so they went to the French governor over in New France. They went to the French governor, a bloke whose name was Marquis de Agenson. And they said to the Marquis, listen, mate, we need your permission. We want to go on a trading expedition up to the north because we hear that that's where the really good, so the real premium furs are found up there. Now, the Marquis, he had to think about this and he come back to him. He says, now, listen, absolutely not. There's no way. He was worried that if these superior furs were found, it would take traders away from the, the the St. Lawrence River, where the French were bringing these big profits, and and disrupt the uh, you know the, the the current state of affairs, and obviously which which is obviously doing the French very well. He didn't want to change that, so the Marquis he refused permission. Rather short sighted of him, you'd think, but didn't matter. Radisson and Grossier they've had a they've had a big fat no back from the, the from the governor, but this didn't stop him. It didn't stop them at all. And what they did, they went off anyway. They went off into this area. This uh, They went further north, further west towards Hudson Bay without his permission. Get stuff, mate, Marquis. We don't care what you say. They come back a year later with some absolutely premium furs. You wouldn't believe the, You wouldn't believe how good these things were. These furs they brought back, the finest you've ever seen. And they told tales of the bounties that lay up to the north on Hudson's Bay. Now, the Marquis, after seeing this governor, right, after seeing the furs, after hearing this story, after you know learning of these, uh, the, you know the the quality of the product that had bring, that had been uh, brought back, what did he do? You know he'd been wrong to forbid them from this expedition. Obviously he'd been proven wrong about the furs up north. They're coming back. They're even better than you could think. What did he do? Well, of course, as you might imagine, he locked up Radisson and Grossier for disobeying him and confiscated their furs. I mean, of course he did. What do you, what are you expecting? You can't let these two upstarts go and make a fool of him. Even you know. I actually don't know why he didn't just chase the bottom line. I mean, bringing back these premium furs, you'd think, well, this would be the signal for France to get on top of that and make sure that they were still staying ahead of the rest of the business, ahead of the competition. But no, he just sat on his hands and locked these two up and that was the end of it. And, you know, he, well, the end of it for him, at least. I mean, that this did not. Uh, this was not a decision that went well, uh, went down very well in history for, uh, uh, for the French. Let me tell you this. Radisson and Grossier, they're locked up, as I say, and eventually they're released, however. And uh, seeing that the Marquis has absolutely no intent to uh, let people head north and set up trading posts and the like on Hudson's Bay, they decide to take another tack. They leave New France. They head to Boston, which, of course, at this stage is still controlled by the English. And they head back to England itself to speak uh, to seek English sponsorship for their new enterprise. 
Now, they get back to England in 1665, and they managed to make contact with a bloke whose name was Prince Rupert. He was a cousin of the English king at the time, Charles II. Now, Rupert was big, big, big into this idea. He loved the sound of what these two blokes were telling him about these furs and Hudson's Bay and all that sort of stuff. And he goes, oh, you know what, boys, I reckon we've got something going on here. So Rupert, he takes the two to meet the king, meet Charles himself, right? Um, and he was instrumental in persuading Charles and a bunch of other people as well to support the expedition. Rupert brought on side other wealthy merchants and traders with sizable investments. And he set Radisson and Grossier up with everything they needed to uh, get, get things going in Hudson's Bay, including, of course, royal permission from King Charles himself. So in 1668, these two, they set sail back to North America with a fully financed expedition that aimed to establish English fur trade in Hudson's Bay, not the French. The French had passed on it, and now it's, uh, now it's the turn of the English. Aboard a ship called the Nunsuch, the expedition made landfall in Hudson's Bay, and it set up Charles Fort at the mouth of Rupert River. You'll, I mean, wherever did they come up with these names? Charles Fort, Rupert River. Um, anyway, after setting up a, a base of operations like this, uh, the expedition spent the winter trading for furs from local indigenous communities and in 1669 loaded up the ship and headed back to England with a rich cargo of premium furs, once again, which were sold for a very, very handsome profit and convinced everyone involved that this was in fact a very bloody good idea. So much so, in fact, that in 1670, Charles, uh, King Charles II, he established by royal charter the Governor and Company of Adventurers of England trading into Hudson's Bay, and so the Hudson's Bay Company, as it became known, was founded. Charles granted the company a trading monopoly over all the areas that drained into Hudson's Bay. According to the uh, the charter, they had a monopoly, a trading monopoly over the seas, straits, bays, rivers, lakes, and creeks. So the entire drainage basin of the Hudson's Bay was now under the authority of this uh, of this company set up by royal charter. Never mind that the land was, you know already well and truly spoken for because generations of indigenous americans had called it home but you know now some englishman with a silly wig has said it doesn't belong to them so it must be so 1.1.5 million square kilometers were claimed for the company much of it obviously inhabited by inuit and first nation communities but this was ignored the the, the fact that they lived there colonial europe played by its own very unfair set of rules that seemed to boil down as eddie izard put it to Sorry, no flag, no country. Well, the HBC did indeed have its own flag, and while technically a company, it was able to behave like a government as it enforced its trading monopoly. Under this charter, the entire region, this entire region, this drainage basin known as Rupert's Land, named after the very same Prince Rupert, who also served as the company's first governor, uh, this entire region was effectively under the authority of the trading company because they were able to, you know, exercise the authority that that they'd been granted by the king um, to enforce a monopoly. So any kind of trading economic activity came under the enforcement of the HBC and therefore had a very, very strong impact on the people's life, you know, the people who were living there on their day-to-day lives. It didn't take long for the company to exercise this authority very strongly. In the coming years, the HBC, they set up a series of trading posts, sent off expeditions, brought back enormous amounts of fur uh, to Europe to service the, the demand there. And uh, in doing so, firmly established the the HBC as not just an economic institution, but a political one. You know, one that was able to uh, project power, project economic, uh, political, military when needed power, 
uh, over an area and the people that lived in it in order to secure these, uh, you know, the financial aims of, again, what was a a company, not not a, not a government, a for-profit company. But what did that actually look like in a, you know in a, in, a, in a practical sense, in a logistical sense? What it looked like was trading posts again that were that were mostly built on rivers, uh, staffed by mostly English officials who sent off mostly Scottish traders who traded with mostly indigenous hunters and trappers. So throughout the waterways, whether it was on the the, the shores of the bay itself or up river, you know, uh, up creeks, whatever else, trading posts were built. Um, traders were sent out from these posts, and uh, furs, you know, goods would go out. Furs would come back in. Uh, these traders were offered, you know, often the the rugged, outdoorsy types living uh, living outdoors, often you know, ingratiating themselves into indigenous communities, as we'll talk about. They'd take goods from the trading posts. They'd travel between these communities, and they'd trade for furs, trade for pelts, pr- principally beaver. Uh, these pelts would be gathered by mainly indigenous hunters, as I'm saying. Hunters and trappers from indigenous communities would go out, hunt and trap these beavers, bring it, bring back their pelts. You know, these are people whose ancestors had lived in this land for generations, but now had to adapt to the changes that uh, European colonial expansion wrought in their lives. In time, too, it wasn't just HBC traders heading out amongst indigenous communities. In in many cases, indigenous communities would actually uh, bring their goods to the posts themselves, skipping the traveling traders, traveling down the rivers and unloading their furs themselves. And this was a a big deal was made of this when this happened. There was a lot of pomp and circumstance when uh, indigenous communities came to visit these uh, HBC trading posts. There was, uh, you know, a big ceremony as as, as these people uh, arrived to trade and they made quite a big deal out of it. Uh, in exchange for their furs, uh, indigenous populations would receive uh, all sorts of other goods, tools, kettles, needles, guns, knives, and uh, perhaps most famously, blankets. Uh, the Hudson's Bay Company Point Blanket, very famous indeed, still available today. Um, they don't accept beaver skins as payment anymore, but uh, you may have seen it. It's a white blanket with four stripes or, or, or points on it. There's a, a green, red, yellow, and indigo stripe. And these stripes were used to indicate the size of the blanket. Uh, there's a, a misconception that the the uh, points refer to the value of it, but it's actually the size of the blanket. You can tell even when it's folded up. And uh, these blankets actually represented a uh, an enormous, an enormous part of the trading done by the HBC, and uh, so it became quite iconic uh, in in you know Canadian history more broadly as they were. Not just used for for warmth around the home, but also fashioned into clothing and and all sorts of other things. So you may have seen an HBC point blank, and and, and again, as I say, you can still buy them today, although they are outrageously expensive uh, today. Um, but this trade, uh, the, you know, these trading processes that the HBC undertook, uh, eventually, you know, I guess we we've talked about it being a de facto government, and there are a couple of things that you know, support the argument of the HBC behaving like a nation. You know, it had a flag, it was able to. Uh, exercise political and economic and sometimes military authority over the over the people subject to its rule. But another really important waypoint that marks the HBC as something of a company is that it actually had its own coinage. In time, the HBC established its own currency in order to facilitate trade. They struck coins. Uh, these coins had the value of one prime male beaver skin. This was known as a made beaver. Um, and with, you know, in conjunction with the political and economic authority, uh, a coinage, and again, even a flag, it's very easy to see why the Hudson's Bay Company is often characterised as a country in its own right. As weird as, that, as it may sound for a company to have that level of authority over people's lives, at this stage, you know, throughout Canadian history, uh, you know, outside of places like what went on to be Quebec um, and Ontario and the Maritimes, 
the HBC represented political authority in in the colonial period of of, of Canada's history and was effectively, as as we say, a government. But uh, even with its status as a de facto government, it still had one primary objective, and that was, of course, to make money, a lot of it. And I tell you this, the riches flowed very freely as trade flourished across the Atlantic, making a lot of people very, very wealthy indeed. But before we get too carried away and start imagining this whole situation with the Hudson's Bay Company as a, you know, as an idyllic capitalist utopia where everyone's now a millionaire, let's get across some of the less pleasant effects of the HBC establishing itself in what is today Canada. And you won't be surprised to learn who uh, bore the brunt of the ill effects of the colonial expansion of the HBC. It was, of course, the Indigenous people and their communities. First and foremost, disease, smallpox, tuberculosis, other horrific maladies spread amongst the Native American population throughout the area uh, that the Hudson's Bay Company controlled, just as it did in other regions that were colonised uh, by uh, by Europeans throughout throughout the Americas. This was not uncommon. It's 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 pretty well known that these diseases ravaged local communities. Native Americans had they had no resistance, they had no immunity to these old world diseases. And uh, they tore through their communities horrifically as a result, countless people dying horrible deaths, particularly the elderly, who, of course, were of, were of special importance to many Indigenous communities. Um, in addition to this, Indigenous people weren't given particularly fair prices for the pelts and the furs that they, you know, that they brought to trade. This, this did vary from region to region, but it's safe to say that the HBC made very tidy profits indeed as they traded, you know, metal tools, weapons, blankets, whatever else at very favourable rates for them against the furs that they'd then go and sell on for a lot more in Europe, a lot more than the worth of the goods that they traded for them. But of course, this is just the beginning of the of the you know the economic impact of the expansion of the HBC into native communities. You know, it, it didn't stop at exploitation at the trading post. The economies of of Native communities were, were severely and uh, irre- irrevocably disrupted by the HBC. I'll tell you why. Many Indigenous people abandoned their traditional lifestyles and instead devoted themselves to hunting and trapping fur, which rendered them reliant on European trade for a livelihood. You know, the 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 temptation to abandon the, the lifestyle of your ancestors in order to, 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 you know, go and hunt and trap fur to cha- exchange for these wondrous goods that uh, the HBC were giving out, you know, these, these advanced technologies and metal tools and guns and knives and whatever else, stuff that hadn't been available in this part of the world. It was very tempting for, for a lot of uh, Indigenous people. And so in abandoning the, the lifestyle of, of, you know, countless generations of their forebears, these uh, indigenous communities were put under not just the political control of the uh, Hudson's Bay Company, but also the, uh, under the economic control of the company because now they were reliant on on European goods and, and, and trading in order to you know just survive. So these changes were were huge; they were irreversible, and and they didn't stop there either. Many uh, many indigenous people they they left they they abandoned their traditional homelands. They started hunting and trapping in the territories of other communities, and this sparked and led to conflict with with uh, but between different uh, indigenous populations so it really was just an enormous upheaval for for the people that had been living on this land for for so for so very very long and you know while they were given access to to new goods advanced technologies they 
they suffered through terrible disease, significant economic and social disruption. These were the prices that were paid by Indigenous people because of the HBC. And, and it's all the more unfair when you realise that Indigenous, uh, Indigenous people were essentially really the only reason that the HBC could even function as it did. The majority, the overwhelming majority, especially to begin with, of the hunting and trapping of these furs that were sold for you know such lucrative profits back in in Europe, the overwhelming majority of these furs were 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 produced by Native Americans, and so without that, the HBC didn't even have the goods to trade for. But further than this, every expedition that was sent off to explore or scout or survey or, or, or seek new natural resources to exploit, every single one had Indigenous guides leading them. And not a lot of credit was given to these poor folk either. The, I mean, the fact of the matter is the Hudson's Bay Company wouldn't have existed without Indigenous support, but this support was very poorly repaid, repaid in exploitation, in disdain, as, you know, despite everything that Indigenous Americans offered the company, most of the Europeans who ran it still thought very little of them, it seems. And this was evidence in the way that Indigenous people, and particularly Indigenous women, were treated by Europeans. Um, despite a ban on intimacy between men employed by the HBC and Indigenous women, relationships nonetheless often developed and, and, and sometimes had pretty dire consequences for these women because many were just more or less abandoned. They were abandoned to just play things when it suited the men, especially after giving birth. Uh, they were left destitute and desperate. They were seen as, as, as disposable. And, uh, you know, even when these relationships developed, they, they weren't viewed with the same level of, uh, of sanctity or respect that, that you know, a, a traditional European marriage might have involved. So it was a pretty rough hand for uh, Indigenous people, particularly Indigenous women, to play in this part as they were treated very much like second class citizens. And, uh, you know, look, as time went on, some of this changed, particularly the relationships between European men and Indigenous women, they became more positively viewed. And, and there was actually, in time, a level of tacit encouragement by the HBC when it came to these relationships, not for perhaps the reasons that you might be hoping for. Well, let's, let's get into a little further. Um, French fur traders had for a very long time, they'd ingratiated themselves into indigenous, indigenous communities. I talk about these blokes who travelled around to these communities and, and ingratiated themselves uh, w- with Indigenous populations in order to, well, I mean, again, to look at it very cynically, get access to the best furs possible. But um, many of these French fur traders, they, they did this by marrying Indigenous women and starting families with them. You know, again, to be cynical, it was a way to get in with Native Americans. But uh, nonetheless, for whatever reason, it did strengthen ties between two, the two cultures. And, you know, while it, it, gained, it, it offered greater access to Europeans uh, to the fur market, at the end of the day, it was a process that brought two cultures, two peoples closer together and in time actually led to the birth of a new culture. You may have heard of the Métis, uh, people of both European and Native American heritage. This is a culture that's still around even today. The Métis, you know, with a foot in both camps, uh, the, the Métis people, they've developed their own customs, their own cultures, and as the years went on, they're still a part of Canadian society and culture even in the 21st century. The, in, in truth, the origin of the Métis are more closely aligned with French rather than the English colonists from the HBC, but the Hudson's Bay Company, and, and again, its tacit encouragement of its employees shacking up with Indigenous women, still plays a part in the, in the history of the Métis people. Anyway, the long and the short of it is this. Indigenous people definitely got the short end of the stick. No surprises there. And even with trade bringing them goods and technology that they'd not have had access before, it is difficult to make the case that Indigenous communities, you know, 
greatly benefited in many areas thanks to the HBC's activities, even the times when the HBC was seen to be looking after the Indigenous populations under its governance, for example, when they began a vaccination program to protect Native Americans from disease. This was usually driven by a concern for the bottom line rather than, you know, being out of compassion or empathy for, for, for the people that, uh, that lived under their authority. Anyway, anyway. As lucrative as the fur trade was, particularly with the exploitation of the labour and knowledge of Indigenous Americans, the HBC still had their fair share of other challenges to face. You won't be surprised to learn that the French were none too pleased about the English setting up shop in Hudson's Bay, particularly as previous to this, they had controlled the fur trade, they had had this, they'd enjoyed this monopoly. Towards the end of the 17th century, these two nations were, you know, on a global level, if you want to zoom out a long way, England and France were, you know, broadly speaking, just engaging in their usual historical pastime. They were at war with one another during the nine years war between 1688 and, and, and 1697, for example. Uh, this war was fought in many different theatres, and the one that we're going to focus on, of course, is in North America, where the HBC fought the French for control of the fur trade. Another thing that kind of earmarks it as a nation is that it made war on other nations. The HBC fought the French in this colonial theatre. The French sent forces to capture HBC-controlled forts and outposts and even succeeded in doing so in some instances and held on to them for from a long time, which significantly disrupted the, uh, the activities of the HBC in Hudson's Bay. But even after this conflict concluded, the Nine Years' War, other European wars, such as the War of the Spanish Succession, they were felt on the other side of the Atlantic. Once again, the French sent forces into the areas controlled by the HBC uh, uh, to, to capture, disrupt what they were doing. It wasn't until 1713 and the Treaty of Utrecht that France was finally forced to officially concede control of Hudson's Bay to the British. It's Britain now, not England. By the time we get to uh, 1713, it's Britain rather than England. And so in doing this, they effectively conceded control of Hudson's Bay to the Hudson's Bay Company as the representative of, of British control in this area. So after fighting these wars against the French around the turn of the, of the 18th century, the HBC was now uncontested when it came to Hudson's Bay, but they weren't uncontested further inland. You'll remember the Royal Charter that, that, that first granted the HBC its authority referred to the drainage basin of, uh, of Hudson's Bay, and HBC outposts stuck to the rivers, to the creeks, other waterways. This meant that enterprising fur traders that were unaffiliated with the HBC began to make uh, their way overland to trade with Indigenous communities there. They would, in effect, violate this monopoly, or at least test it, by not using the waterways that were laid out in the government charter, in this royal charter, and instead went overland and, uh, and would trade with communities this way. Now, the HBC... It, it, they were, largely speaking, slow to respond to this. They, as, as I say, they stuck to the rivers, they stuck to, the, to these other waterways. But this competition ended up being a spur to their flanks. By the way, this competition greatly suited the Indigenous people. They finally had a bit of bargaining power. They managed to drive up the prices of the, of the goods that they were trading, the furs they were trading. And it was probably this more than anything else that ended up spurring the HBC into action. For the first half of the 18th century, these overland traders slowly but surely began to undercut the HBC and its monopoly until finally the company responded by forging further inland and building trading posts a long way away from the waterways that they'd stuck to beforehand. And this necessarily 
brought more land under their control. They had power, principally economic power. And while, again, they're not a government in the way that we think of one today, they still effectively ruled over the people who lived in these areas and regulated their lives by enforcing this monopoly. All of a sudden, you weren't allowed to buy and sell goods. You weren't allowed to trade or do anything else like that without the permission of the HBC. And they had the guns and the pointy sticks to to, to back up telling you that you weren't allowed to do this. So that is, in a nutshell, political control. And that is how the HBC expanded its its political sphere of influence throughout what is today obviously modern day Canada as they forged further west, further north, further inland. But still they had competition. Let me tell you this. In 1779, a new company was formed. It was based in Montreal, but it was called the Northwest Company. And it traded principally in the northwest part of modern day Canada, an area that became known as the Northwest Territory. And throughout the Northwest Territory, there was a lot of competition, there was a lot of conflict between the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company. The, HWC, uh, the, the HBC and the NWC actually ended up effectively going to war as they competed for control of the fur, uh, of the fur trade. Both companies sought to expand their spheres of infra- influence, principally westward. And as they pushed west towards the Pacific, this prompted more exploration, more contact with more indigenous populations, but it also prompted violence, actual proper violence as these two companies contested uh, each other for control of the fur trade. On uh, on more than one occasion, there was bloodshed. The Pemmican War, as it's known these days, was fought over nine years between 1812 and 1821 by these two companies going to war with each other with guns and swords and blood and guts. This is not a trade war. This is a real, actual, proper war that was being fought by two companies, right? It, it, it's incredible. It involved everything from blockades and raids to battles, the burning of forts and outposts. The conflict was so damaging to trade, in fact, that the British government actually ended up stepping in. In 1821, what ended the Pemmican War between the HBC and the NWC was the British government coming in and being like, all right, that's enough of that, you two. They forced a merger between the two companies. They they forced them to, to become one big company so they wouldn't be fighting with each other anymore. The Northwest Company became part of the Hudson's Bay Company and uh, its territory was absorbed into the territory of the HBC, whose effective land now stretched from the Atlantic up to the Arctic and all the way across to the Pacific, a monumentally enormous amount of land, some of which, even further, wasn't isn't even part of modern day Canada. Some of the HBC's territory actually went on to become part of the US. That's how far south they explored, and that's how far south their sphere of influence uh, continued. Again, it's difficult to you know sort of strictly outline all of this on a map because much of it was just kind of whoever got there first, whoever set up the trading post, whoever had the guns and the pointy sticks. But I'll put it this way. The HBC had trading posts as far southwest as Yerba Buena, which is a place that you've probably heard of before, even if you didn't realize it. Today, we call it San Francisco. So this was the influence that the HBC was able to... uh, was able to, you know, enjoy at, at this period in history. It controlled, it had economic and, and political and, and therefore military control over a just just a colossal part of North America. But check this out, because here's the really, really interesting thing. Oftentimes, political control of an area involves governance of the people that live there. People moving in, you enabling 
the settlement of this area, you know, people wanting to move in and set up farms and, and, and commerce and industry. And when we look at the sphere of influence that the HBC had, and when we look at this, this gigantic part of North America that it controlled, obviously today these places are, for want of a better term, settled. You know, there are towns and cities, lots and lots of people live there, even if they're the, not the most heavily and densely populated areas, places like Saskatchewan and, and Alberta and Montana. You know, these are, these are areas that have, uh, that have towns and cities and, and, and all the rest of it. But during the time, right, that the HBC was in control of this area, they actively avoided the settlement of the land that they controlled. A very curious thing, particularly when you think about how most governments at this period in history treated, quote unquote, unsettled land. Of course, you know, never mind the fact that, you know, scores of Indigenous people live there. This is, this is the view that these Western governments take. This, this is land that is ripe for the taking. The HBC, on the other hand, as a de facto government... They didn't want pioneers and settlers moving west. They actively tried to keep people out of the area that they controlled. They didn't want people coming in and building farmsteads and the like. The US was expanding westward in the early 19th century, of course, and the HBC actively attempted to prevent people from moving west. They spread stories of uninhabitable wilderness that was found out west, when, of course, you know, much of it highly arable land. They surrounded their outposts with wreckage taken from ruined wagons to, you know, remind people of the dangers of moving out west, to warn people off of making the journey in the first place. In other words, the HBC did everything they could to stymie settlement of the west. You know, we know that the US was moving into this area. We know that there were pioneers moving across the uh, across this land looking for a place to live. And the HBC stood in the way of that, not just in modern-day Canada, but also in what would go on to become the United States. But why? Again, they had an enormous amount of influence, political and economic control over this area. Why were they trying to keep people out when they could bring people there under their, under their control? Because they wanted to use the land and its resources for themselves. They wanted to continue to enforce this monopoly that had been granted 150 years ago and continue to profit, profit off of it. Now, of course, you know, we all know that they were completely unsuccessful in doing this. Ultimately, this area did become settled and there was a huge influx of, uh, of people that moved in. Um, you know, in 1843, a huge wagon train made it all the way to Oregon, opened up the region to an influx of settlers and the rest, as they say, is history. But before this was the case, the HBC was actually attempting to, again, as I say, prevent people from pushing westward because they wanted this land to themselves. They wanted to be able to hunt and trap and, and exploit this land without other you know, pesky farmers coming in and, and setting up shop. But of course, they were fighting a losing battle. And as time went on, more and more people moved out west and, and other things cropped up to prevent the HBC from fulfilling their aims in, in keeping people out of this land. In 1849, the HBC lost all authority over land south of the 49th parallel. They fell into the hands of the United States. The 49th parallel is, is you know, t today, even today, the, uh, the modern border between much of the US and Canada. And people continued to head westward in, in spite of all the, you know, the, 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 the horror stories that the HBC had put out, and not just in the US either, north of the parallel too. And this meant that the HBC now had an ever-increasing population to govern as a company, not as a government. They were people that were moving west every day, and this meant that the HBC had a, a, essentially a political responsibility for them because they were living in the land that the HBC claimed to control. So despite the HBC 
Falsely insisting that these lands were barren and unfit for settlement, people continued to move west, and all of this, combined with a few other factors, began to significantly change the role and the activities of the Hudson's Bay Company. In 1849, the very same year that the HBC lost authority below the 49th parallel, their monopoly was significantly challenged and effectively overturned when a Meti trader was taken to court for breaking this monopoly and, while found guilty, wasn't punished. There were campaigns for free trade in this area controlled by the HBC and eventually the tide of history overcame the resistance that the Hudson's Bay Company had uh, in, in attempting to continue to enforce their monopoly. It just it reflected the fact that Hudson's Bay Company at this point, it, it couldn't effectively enforce the monopoly that it had had for so long. And this, this court case encouraged others to trade independently as well, as it didn't seem that there was going to be a penalty for it. We talked about what political power actually looks like, having the guns and the pointy sticks to make people do what you want. Well, in 1849, that unraveled significantly as independent traders realised, hey, we're not going to be punished for breaking the HBC so-called monopoly. And then a couple of years later, in between 1857 and 1860, the Palliser expedition, led by a bloke whose name was Captain John Palliser, uh, he surveyed these you know, apparently barren lands out west that the HBC had been talking about and came back revealed them to be very suitable for settlement indeed, dispelling the lies that had been told by the Hudson's Bay Company previously. But finally, the thing that would forever change the nature and the role of the, of the Hudson's Bay Company happened in 1863 when an organisation called the International Financial Society bought a controlling stake in the company and began to steer it away from the fur trade, which in truth was ailing. You know, at this point, the Industrial Revolution is in full swing. The future is in, is in steam and railroads, in settlement and expansion. It's not in, it's not in beaver pelts. And the HBC was seen by many as archaic, as, as outmoded, a, a relic of the past, no longer fit for purpose. And so when the International Financial Society bought in, what did they do? Well, they moved the company away from fur trade. Not completely, but they, they took put a lot smaller emphasis on fur trading and instead moved into, you'll never guess what, real estate. I mean, after all, why not? The HBC controlled a massive amount of land. Why not try to profit off it? Especially as there was high demand for it, settlers are surging westward. Give the you know give these people what they want. Never mind once again that the land was spoken for by indigenous populations that had lived there for generations. Throughout the 1860s, the HBC made a colossal amount of money off of the land that they controlled, and this was just the start. Because what happened next, of course, in 1867 was the Confederation of Canada. Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Ontario and Quebec, they confederated in 1867 and formed the Dominion of Canada. And this new government was very keen to add the area controlled by the HBC to its possession. This is Rupert's Land and the Northwest Territory. However, interestingly, well, actually, I guess not interesting, unsurprisingly, the HBC, well, they weren't going to take the first offer that was made to them. They were happy to go to the highest bidder. And, between, and from 1867, around in this period, the HBC, they shopped around. It actually looked like at one point they might end up being bought out by the United States and, and their territory would have gone and, and become part of the US. But after long negotiations, Canada ended up buying Rupert's land for £300,000. It might have gone the other way. Had the US been more aggressive in buying this land, much of today's Canada may have ended up in the possession of the United States. But as it was... The, uh, the Great Britain helped to finance uh, this purchase of land made by the new government of the Dominion of Canada. And as a result, in 1869, 
the HBC sold up as part of a deal known as the Deed of Surrender. And with the deed and another piece of legislation known as the Rupert's Land Act, its land officially became part of the Dominion of Canada with a new name, the Northwest Territories. Rupert's land that, it, you know, it expanded from the drainage basin of the, of the Hudson's Bay all the way further out west in conjunction with the land that had been acquired off of the Northwest Company years ago. It was combined and it was parceled and given to the Dominion of Canada for the low price of £300,000. And that is, even today, the bulk of Canada. The, uh, most, of, most of Canada is made up of this enormous uh, purchase that was made uh, under the Deed of Surrender, under the Rupert's Land Act. And uh, even the name of this area, as it was first, uh, when the Dominion of Canada took possession of it, the Northwest Territories, that, that's still what the name of one of the territories of, uh, of Canada today, although, you know, plenty of other provinces, Saskatchewan, Alberta, all that sort of stuff, were carved out of the Northwest Territories as the years went on. But you won't be surprised to learn uh, that there were more than a few people who weren't thrilled with this sale that was made. The Indigenous people who had lived on this land that was being bought and sold without reference to them weren't too hot on the fact that, you know, these transactions were taking place without place without any reference to them and also in ways that didn't benefit them even or even slightly. The, the resistance to the sale was utterly futile, of course. There were a string of one-sided treaties that were signed, did little to make things better for them. But the arguments that the HBC had no right to sell land that they didn't actually own, these arguments fell on deaf ears. At one point, Chief Pasqua of the Pasqua uh, apparently confronted an HBC employee and said, you told me that you sold the land for so much money, £300,000. We want that money. But they, of course, didn't see any of the money. Just as Charles II had handed it to the HBC without their consent 200 years ago, this land was now being handed away again without any reference to the people that actually lived in it and had done for generations. So, from 1869 onwards, the HBC no longer had its vast holdings of land. They were now part of the Dominion of Canada and they remain so, of course, to this very day. However, the story of the HBC is far from over and let me tell you why. In addition to the £300,000, the HBC had also negotiated as part of selling up that they would still own some 10 million acres of land within the Dominion of Canada, under the authority of the Canadian government, of course, but the, the, the land itself would still be the property of the Hudson's Bay Company. And it was no coincidence that they held on to some very important parcels of land, the land in and around their trading posts, which grew into large settlements as time went on and more people pushed westward. In the later years of the 19th century, the Hudson's Bay Company transformed into a fully-fledged real estate company, while of course continuing to exploit this land's natural resources wherever they could. As people moved west, far from their previous ambition to keep people out of their land, the HBC now facilitated land settlement. They moved into oil and gas production as well, and the wheels of commerce continued to line the pockets of HBC shareholders just as it had done with the fur trade beforehand. But it was the land that they kept under the deed of surrender, this land around their trading posts, right, that ended up being so lucrative and shaping the future of the company from this point onwards. Their trading posts and the settlement of the land around these trading posts shaped the next chapter in the tale of the Hudson's Bay Company most profoundly. And you might already begin to be seeing where this is going. 
The HBC encouraged the development of the settlement of the land around trading posts spread throughout Western Canada. And as people moved into this area, some of these some of these trading posts became the the economic centerpiece of sizable settlements, towns, even cities that sprang up, all of them principally supplied by the trading posts that were owned and operated by the Hudson's Bay Company. Settlers would arrive and they'd need to buy a range of things to get themselves started in their new homes. Tools, kettles, knives, blankets. I mean, you see where this is going, right? These trading posts, they sold everything that a settler might need. They had the advantage of being there first, well-established as the settlers arrived, a place to go and buy whatever you need to start a new life in one of these Western settlements. And seeing they're in the middle of settlements, well, now you can't really call them trading posts anymore. What, do you, what would you call them? They're not isolated. They're not far-flung. They're just shops. They're, they're big stores selling all manner of things to people. Does this sound familiar? Because they were, in fact, the precursor to the modern department store. These were huge retail centres that serviced these growing settlements as they expanded by selling settlers whatever they needed. And as we move into the 20th century, these Western trading posts had evolved into important retail centres in what became very swiftly burgeoning populations. They had the advantage of being there first. They were there before these settlements were even settlements. And so they were very strongly ingrained in the economic and, and social fabric of these towns and cities that were, that were springing up as people moved westward. These previously far-flung and isolated trading posts facilitated the settlement of this area, encouraged the expansion and growth of these, uh, of these conurbations, these new towns and cities. And because they got there first, because they were there before people even started arriving to settle this area, they had a natural and inbuilt, inbuilt advantage, which catapulted the success, the retail success of the Hudson's Bay Company and turned these, again, previously isolated little trading posts into enormous department stores, which, of course, is what the Hudson's Bay Company is known for today. And as these department stores took off, this prompted a, a, a restructure of the Hudson's Bay Company, it divided itself into three sections, fur trading, which slowly petered out as time went on, land sales, which eventually became a subsidiary company in 1961, and retail, which quickly became the main focus of the company. The HBC built huge retail complexes throughout the West in Calgary and Winnipeg and Vancouver, and then began, and then began to spread east. In 1960, they acquired the Montreal-based Henry Morgan and Company department store chain. In the 1970s, they expanded into more retail ventures. Their past life at this point as a fur trading company all but forgotten. In fact, in 1970, Queen Elizabeth II officially revoked the charter that had been granted by Charles II exactly 300 years after it was first announced. And she also transferred the company from the UK into Canada, where new headquarters were founded in Winnipeg. Three centuries to the year after Radisson's and, Radisson and Grossier's endeavours caused an English monarch to grant the Hudson Bay Company its monopoly, 300 years later, Another English monarch revoked it and so closed that chapter on a company that had a profound, a foundational impact on the history of the nation of Canada and countless people, both Indigenous and colonial, who lived there. 
The HBC continued to expand its retail empire even after this, of course. It didn't control half a continent's worth of land anymore, but it controlled countless millions in stakes in various other retail chains. ShopRite, Simpsons, Woodward's, Towers, Kmart, Canada. The HBC acquired them all and entered the 21st century as a retail giant. But in 2008, however, the Hudson's Bay Company was itself bought out by the NRDC Equity Partners and remains in its possession to this very day. And today, you might never guess that the Hudson's Bay Company, just another big department store, began its life 350 years ago as a fur trading company that went on to rule half a continent. They still sell their blankets, just as they did centuries ago, alongside colognes and hair dryers and this weird smoothie thing that they have plastered all over their website at the moment. I don't know what's going on there. But unlike their competitors, the Hudson's Bay Company has stood the test of time. The Northwest Company, the East India Company, even the mighty Dutch East India Company, so many more, they all went under. They were dissolved or abolished. History came for them all. But the HBC is still around today, amazingly. A retail giant with a history that spans three and a half centuries. From the role they played in spreading the colonial influence of England and then Britain, from the wealth they delivered across the Atlantic to Europe, from the lives and the communities that they changed forever and not necessarily for the best when it came to Indigenous populations, of course, to their role in the foundation of the modern nation of Canada, the Hudson's Bay Company has a much deeper and much more involved story than most of the places that you'd go if you wanted an overpriced gift for Mother's Day. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Hudson's Bay Company. Bloody long one, a lot longer than I expected to be, but so interesting to learn about, you know, something as, as innocuous as just a regular department store, talking to people about their impression of it. Many people didn't really know that it had this, uh, this long history, this long backstory that involved so much and was so important. Uh, in a foundational sense to the nation of Canada. So really interesting to get across it, and I, and I do hope you enjoyed the episode. Anyway, that is that for this week in Half Hours History. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, all the boring, normal housekeeping stuff coming your way now. Uh, Halfhoushistory.net, of course, the website, file of episodes there, and a contact form if you've got a topic suggestion or you just want to get in touch for any other reason. Um, and uh, you can go to anchor.fm slash History for the, a link to the feed. Uh, a very small number of shirts still available at the merch page. There's a link there at the website. Or you can go to patreon.com slash history to support the show financially if anyone uh, wants to join it. There's been a bunch of new signups for uh, for the patrons, so thank you so much to all the new listeners coming in and uh, throwing me a dollar or two every uh, every month. I do appreciate it. If you want access to, to bonus content, um, early access to episode show notes, whatever else, all sorts of stuff there, patreon.com slash history. Get across that. But that's that. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week for more nonsense. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit, of course. This one comes to us from Redditor Ecolis, who asks, Why didn't Canada win the space race? They're further north than the US. They're closer to space.